world still reeling clearly from the humanitarian impact of COVID-19 and the immediate social and economic consequences of the many restrictions governments have put in place to try to bring the virus under control. Um, governments have announced large fiscal and monetary stimulus packages to address immediate hardship and mitigate the economic impacts arising directly and indirectly from the spread of the virus. But to date, these have been less effective than governments may have hoped at calming market volatility and broader social concerns, and those concerns increasing as the restrictions on individuals' movements um, uh, are, are tightened. In the UK, the immediate focus of companies and other organizations has been on the health and welfare of their employees, their teams, and maintaining their business as far as possible through the preservation of their supply chain and management of operational issues arising from the restrictions, including the challenge of large-scale remote working and the prospect of absenteeism caused by illness, broader restrictions that are now in place, for example, in the UK and other factors. And whilst the health and safety of staff and customers are the overwhelming priorities at this time, the implications of these rather odd and unprecedented times are numerous and they're still emerging. From an employment law perspective, the pandemic is first and foremost about protecting the health and safety of staff. In the UK and other countries, employers obviously have a legal duty of care to provide a safe place to work. And I think at the start of this outbreak, that primarily meant things like communicating with staff on hygiene precautions, providing hand sanitizers, complying uh, with the developing advice on international travel. As the situation has become more serious, employers are obviously having to handle increasing numbers of employees absent from work or working from home, as well as the implications of temporary business closures. So there's a lot of employment law issues to consider. I only have time to mention a few today, um, and I'll do that mainly from a UK perspective, although I think similar issues obviously arise elsewhere. The first issue, of course, is that obviously there's a lot more employees at home, whether that's because they're sick, they're self-isolating, and or they're working from home. And indeed, in the UK, the advice for the last few days has been that everyone should be working at home, if at all possible. I should mention there's been some debate this morning as to whether the Prime Minister's message last night means that only key workers can now travel to work. But I don't actually think that is the case. The guidance they published shortly after the speech still says that travel to work is permitted if the work absolutely cannot be done from home. So there's a change of emphasis only, really. <coughs> So those who can work at home should do and should obviously receive full pay. But what about those who can't do their jobs at home? Well, where individuals are advised to self-isolate because they live in a household with someone who has the virus or because they're in a particularly vulnerable group at higher risk, then they wouldn't normally qualify for statutory sick pay in the UK. But the UK government has stepped in and amended the usual rules to cover those individuals. And of course, um, employers can in any event pay more than the statutory rate of sick pay either under a more generous contractual sick pay policy or voluntarily. There may also be individuals who aren't covered by the advice to self-isolate, who can't work from home, but who still don't want to come into work, perhaps because they live with a vulnerable individual. And I think it's important that those cases are handled sensitively. Employers may want to consider offering alternative work, if that's feasible, or unpaid leave. With regard to home working, employers need to ensure that employees have the necessary equipment have taken health and safety precautions and that security measures are in place to protect data and confidential information. Of course, homeworking will be more challenging following the closure of schools in many countries, including the UK. 
the UK government has made specific provision for children of critical workers still to attend school if they can't be looked after at home. But for everyone else, um, children are going to be at home for the next few weeks at least. Employees who can work from home may just need a bit more flexibility in when or how many hours they work. Whereas parents who can't work remotely obviously may need to either reduce the number of days they work or take some form of leave. In the UK, there is a statutory right to unpaid time off to care for dependents, but that only applies to cover a few days in an emergency situation. So for an ongoing situation like this, you're looking at having to use paid holiday or unpaid parental or other leave. The most concerning issue, of course, is the temporary closure of some businesses. In the UK, in most cases, employers do not have the right unilaterally to temporarily lay someone off and keep them on their books without pay. They'll only have that right if the contract provides for it, which is rare, and subject to the agreement of any workplace union. So normally, an employer would need to think about making collective redundancies, and that would require um, going down the information and consultation process with employee representatives. Like other governments, the UK government has now acted to try and minimise redundancies by announcing a coronavirus job retention scheme. We don't yet have a lot of detail, but we do know that the scheme will be available to any employer and will provide a grant of 80% of the wages of employees who are kept on payroll without work, up to a maximum of £2,500 a month. The scheme is going to be backdated to the 1st of March and be open for at least three months, and it's expected to be up and running fully by the end of April. So just to finish with two quick final points that are specific to the UK. First, um, given the pressing need for more healthcare staff, there are plans to introduce emergency volunteer leave, which will enable employees with relevant skills to take a short period of unpaid leave from their usual jobs in order to work temporarily in health or social care. So that may affect some employers. And secondly, just looking quickly at pensions, Employer sponsors of a defined benefit scheme may be thinking of approaching the scheme trustees for a contribution holiday or deferral. If so, legal advice should be sought given that that could be a default event for the purpose of the existing lending facilities. The pensions regulator has issued guidance for trustees on this and emphasised that the scheme should be treated fairly alongside the company's other creditors or lenders and that steps should be taken to ensure that dividends cease and no new intergroup loans are granted. On the defined contribution side, there are calls to change the law to allow workers to temporarily suspend auto-enrolment contributions without having to opt out of their scheme. So that's another area to watch out for. I'll now hand over to Miriam Everett to discuss data privacy issues. Thank you, Anna, and and good morning. My name is Miriam Everett. I'm a partner here at Herbert Smith Freehills, and I head up the data privacy team. From a privacy perspective, I think the key message at the moment is twofold. First of all, privacy laws such as the GDPR still apply. And secondly, although they do apply, data protection legislation should not be used or seen as a barrier to efforts to prevent the spread of the virus. There have been various reports and commentaries in the press saying that there's a pandemic carve out under the GDPR, which would mean it doesn't apply. That's not strictly true. There are no comprehensive carve-outs or exemptions, which would mean that the legislation falls away. However, it is right to say that the GDPR contemplates public health crises, such as the one we're currently experiencing. And the processing of sensitive personal data, such as health data, can be legitimized under the GDPR if necessary for reasons of public interest in the area of public health, such as for protecting against serious cross-border threats to health. 
From a practical perspective, this means that the processing of health data can be undertaken for such reasons of public interest without having, for example, to seek the explicit consent of the individuals in question. From the regulator's perspective, both the Information Commissioner's Office in the UK and the European Data Protection Board have published statements relating to COVID and and data protection in the last week or two. Other privacy regulators have also issued their own statements and data protection authorities in Ireland, France and Argentina, for example, have all released statements to the effect that public health authorities are entitled to collect and process health data without consent, but have stated that any measures taken must be necessary and proportionate and must not go beyond the management of suspected exposure to the virus. The message from the ICO in the UK is that privacy rules do indeed still apply and should be considered when gathering and using personal data. But the regulator is also seeking to reassure organisations that it will be taking a sensible approach to enforcement and sanctions during the crisis. For example, whilst it confirms that it can't extend statutory timelines, for example, to respond to subject access requests, it understands that staff and expenditure may currently be diverted from usual compliance work and it won't penalise organisations that need to adapt their approach during this extraordinary period. This certainly shouldn't be considered to be a get-out-of-jail-free card with respect to compliance, but it will provide some reassurance to organisations currently struggling to cope in these extraordinary times. From a practical perspective for private sector organisations, therefore, I think the UK guidance can probably be summarised as follows. So government, NHS and health professionals can send public health messages to individuals using all forms of technology, including phone, text or emails. And these are not considered marketing messages and so fall out of the uh, e-privacy regime. Data protection law is not a barrier to home working, but organisations must ensure that they have appropriate security measures in place for home working as for working in the office. Employees should be kept informed about COVID cases in their organisation, though employers shouldn't provide more information about individuals than is necessary. For example, this doesn't mean that individuals need to be named. Where employers collect health data, they shouldn't collect more than they need and they should ensure that they implement appropriate safeguards, particularly with respect to health data. Where it's necessary for employers to share information with public authorities about specific employees for public health purposes, then again, data protection law will not prevent this. At a more macro level, governments around the world have attempted to control the pandemic by harnessing new technology and its power to collect and analyse increasingly large amounts of personal data. Whilst it's understandable that governments are seeking to use all means at their disposal in order to control the pandemic, this is creating a natural tension, perhaps, between the use of this data and the protection of personal privacy rights. Globally, a wide range of approaches have been taken and a variety of statements made by public authorities which either reaffirm a commitment to data privacy or conversely sometimes appear to backtrack on previous approaches. One example of this tension between public health and privacy focuses on South Korea where a GPS tracking app and SMS alert system is being used to enable public authorities to send text messages detailing the age, gender and recent movements of anyone recently diagnosed. The approach has made headlines around the world as inferences are being drawn about individuals, for example, their marital status and sexual preferences on the basis of this location data that's being shared publicly. Another consequence of the outbreak is that many government authorities have also required private companies to share personal data originally collected for commercial purposes. 
For example, officials in Singapore have requested location data from airlines, taxi companies and ride-sharing apps. So in conclusion, it certainly seems that COVID is having and will continue to have an interesting impact on global data protection legislation and the right to privacy often only recently enshrined in many short laws around the world. Whilst it does not yet appear that data subjects are challenging uh, government responses, it's important to note that many regulators, particularly in Europe, are reiterating the need to keep data protection in mind when considering responses to this pandemic. And when the dust of the current crisis has settled, the impact on data protection and privacy may be an interesting and perhaps unintended consequence of current unprecedented events. We could not um, sensibly or comprehensively or exhaustively have covered all of the issues raised today in great detail. Um, we will um, already have on our COVID-19 hub a number of materials that go into some of these subjects in greater depth. So please either get in touch with us directly or look on our hub if you would like more information on any of the points that we've covered. And finally, as I said at the start, please do take a few minutes to provide some feedback as we do value and learn from your input on these sessions. Thank you all for listening in and I hope you all stay safe and well.